What do an 18th century priest and a mysterious 16th century chevalier have in common? They were both found buried under the most famous church in France. Join me as we take a closer look at what's going on with the sarcophagi of Notre Dame. Welcome to this episode of Paris Gone By, the Parisian history podcast for the curious traveler. I'm Michelle, your host and guide to the Paris of the past. We're starting off 2023 like we started off this whole podcast affair with Notre Dame. If you may recall, I ended up dedicating the first two episodes of the podcast to Notre Dame, with the second one being all about the sarcophagus that was famously found under the floor of the transept. What went under the radar a little bit was the discovery of a second sarcophagus in the same area, though it was more expectedly found inside of a vault instead of among the heating vents and other paraphernalia under the floor. I discovered this fact when I was working on a Summer Updates blog post last year and was a bit surprised that it hadn't made a bigger splash in the English language media. It was reported at the time that the sarcophagi had been taken to a research facility at the University Hospital in Toulouse, and they should have been cracked open back in September. But like everything else in 2022, it took longer than expected, and they finally began work in November. And in December, they announced their initial results. First, both of them contained male bodies, as this was pretty much expected. It would have been extraordinary if it had been a female, though I had been rooting for one at the time. Looking at the OG sarcophagus, the one that made so much news, the physical sarcophagus was much more badly damaged than originally reported or perhaps originally understood at the time. It had been punctured in several spots, which allowed air to enter it and basically resulted in a significant loss of organic matter, unfortunately. Oxygen is the enemy of preservation and burials, so we don't know a whole lot about this guy. I personally think it would be interesting to know when that damaged occurred, if they can figure that out. Was it during Viollet-le-Duc's 19th century restoration? Or perhaps it was a a little bit earlier, or maybe even when they destroyed the medieval rood screen, as we'll look at later. I'm not sure that they're actually pursuing that detail, but I hope that they are. And what was inside this badly damaged vessel? His skeletal remains, as well as some of the evidence of the plants and flowers in the shroud that were originally reported, were there. However, there was a general loss of organic material that made it very difficult to identify our mystery man. Charmingly, they have nicknamed him Le Chevalier, or the Knight, because they can tell that he was a lifelong horseback rider based on uh, the wear and tear on his pelvic bones. He also had more wear and tear on his upper body that suggested a very physical life. Perhaps, uh, this is my speculation, of someone in the military some armor, some, you know, weapons, the sheer force of controlling the horse. He was definitely noble based on the fact that he had a lead sarcophagus, they were very expensive, and that he was buried in one of the most important churches in France, and in fact, in one of the most important locations within that church, there right in front of 
the medieval stone rood screen, which had a big cross on the front of it, of course, symbolically important. And then it's right there at the altar, which is another reason why it was such an important location. The Chevalier was also embalmed, as evidenced by the top of his skull having been very cleanly removed. The photos are a little macabre, but fascinating. I'll have some on the website for you in the show notes. According to The Guardian, his skull also revealed that he probably had a a deliberate skull deformity known as a Toulouse deformity. This is similar to the more famous practices of the Inca and the Maya here in the Americas. This was a regional tradition of wrapping a baby's skull in a cloth or bandeau, creating an elongated skull shape. And if this was in fact a deliberate deformity and not an unfortunate birth defect, it could suggest that he or his family were from the Toulouse region, so he's sort of back home right now. Weirdly, the practice was carried out until the early 20th century, so this is more of a a geographic detail or a biographical detail uh, than a dating detail for the scientists. Beyond those obvious physical attributes, they think the poor guy died somewhere between the age of 25 and 40, so in his prime, basically from a form of meningitis that's associated with tuberculosis. He seems to have lost most of his teeth leading up to his untimely death. The scientists really focused on the teeth because there's not a lot else to go on. They also stated that he probably had a a pretty painful end to his life. Frankly, they don't call tuberculosis consumption for nothing. It's a pretty long and brutal way to go. But when exactly did he die? When they originally found the sarcophagus, the team thought it could be as far back as the 14th century. But the style of embalming and the use of flowers in the burial suggest a later date, possibly late 16th or early 17th centuries, so we're talking late 1500s, early 1600s. And if that is the correct range, then there is hope that he can be located in the burial registries for Notre Dame. But if he proves to be older than that, if he is genuinely medieval, then his exact identity probably will remain a mystery. That takes care of that guy. What about the other guy, the new guy. (laughs) The second sarcophagus was actually fairly easy to identify once the exterior was cleaned up. There was a handy nameplate attached to the lid that identified the body within the sarcophagus. And that nameplate read, translated in English, this is the body of Monsieur Antoine de Laporte, canon of the church, and then something was erased, died December 24th, 1710, in his 83rd year, requiescat in pace, rest in peace. Antoine, and we're, we're going to call him Antoine, was a wealthy canon or type of priest at the Cathedral of Notre Dame. He was known as the Jubilee Canon because he had spent over 50 years in that role, though it's unclear if it was 50 years fully at Notre Dame or if he worked at other churches as well, which was kind of the case, usually kind of moved around a little bit. He and his money also played a very important role in the Baroque-era updates that were made to the interior of Notre Dame. Here we have to kind of take a quick detour back to the reign of Louis XIII. In 1638, Louis was desperate for an heir, and he prayed to the Virgin Mary, or Notre Dame, to help him. He promised that if he was given a son, he would pay to update the interior of Notre Dame. 
And lo and behold, Louis Dieudonné, or the God-given, was born at last. Unfortunately for Notre Dame, though, Louis XIII died about five years later, leaving his promise largely unfulfilled. His four-year-old son, the now Louis XIV, was not all that interested in church renovation at that age, and it would actually take him many decades, over 50 years, before Louis would get around to that particular commitment of his father's. I, this was toward the end of his own life, and I think he's probably thinking about meeting his maker, and he was like, wait, dad, dad had a project. <laughs> And he started putting that into place around 1699. But by this point, the French crown was very cash poor, thanks to Louis's endless construction at Versailles and his perpetual need to wage war. Enter one apparently very loaded cannon. Antoine kindly donated 10,000 livres to the cause, Attempting to convert that livre uh, meaningfully into modern currency verges on the impossible. It's very hard to do extinct currency conversions. The pound actually is much easier if you're ever having to do this sort of thing. But by comparison, on one chart, I found the average laborer was making just a little less than a livre per day, or about 300 livres per year after taking time off for all the holy days. So basically, 10,000 livres was the equivalent of 33 average laborers' salary. So it was a lot of money. It was a huge donation. He was also a patron of the arts, and several of the works he commissioned still survive. And there's even a posthumously painted one of him preaching at Notre Dame that is now held by the Louvre. I was frankly very curious about this wealthy man of the church. We learned in the University of Paris episode last fall that most church officials came from wealthy families, and Monsieur de la Porte seems to have been among that group. Unfortunately, despite going rather deep down the Google rabbit hole, I couldn't find anything about who he was specifically, his past. But genealogy is a hobby and a side hustle of mine, so I kept going. And in the Paris archives, I did find a very wealthy de Laporte family living just around the corner from the Saint-Eustache Church, that big church there by Léal. They were very rich merchants who were also involved in politics and hobnobbed with members of the royal court. Since this was exactly what Anton was doing, it seems likely that he was probably part of that family. And incredibly, the de la Porte mansion, the aptly named Hotel de la Porte, from the 16th century is still standing. It is now split into a museum for the French Bar Association. There really is a museum for everything in France. And a swanky hotel if you want to stay where Antoine perhaps had relatives if didn't grow up. If you have any additional information or research tips about Antoine and his origins, let me know. That would be really awesome. His very generous donation to Notre Dame then helped pay actually for the destruction of the medieval stone rood screen and the creation of its gilded wrought iron replacement along with a lot of the Baroque-style altar features that we still see today. He died, unfortunately, before the work was done and was buried in a vault near the transept and the updated altar that he had helped pay for. While his sarcophagus was also breached by something, and he was mostly just a skeleton as well, they were able to tell some very interesting facts about Antoine. 
As befits a man of the cloth, his body showed that he lived comfortably and did not perform any hard labor. That makes me really want to work out, by the way. I don't want people saying this about me. She did nothing. She was clearly just sat on her on her tush all day. And as befits a wealthy man of advanced years, he showed signs of gout, so he was pretty uncomfortable. Inrap, the National Archaeological Institute, also emphasized his surprisingly good dentition. He was apparently a dentist's dream. One article also said that his sarcophagus showed signs of water damage from presumably, they say, the Great Flood of 1910. I never thought about the water level inside of the church during that flood, and this may end up being a future research project, actually. Here, I think it's worth taking a moment to review the currently assumed timeline. We have Le Chevalier, who perhaps died of tuberculosis in the late 1500s or early 1600s, which would put him possibly during the reign of Henri IV, Henry IV, he of the wandering head, and check out that podcast episode. And our knight was buried in Notre Dame at that point, probably in a place of prominence in the transepts near the medieval rood screen. And then in 1638, Henri's son Louis XIII vowed to modernize Notre Dame in the name of the miracle of his son's birth. And then he quickly died of tuberculosis. There's a trend there. Louis's son, the Sun King, Louis XIV himself, eventually made good on his dad's promise and began to update the church around 1699. And with funds from our Antoine, the medieval rood screen was then destroyed and tossed under the floor, possibly on top of and adjacent to Le Chevalier, maybe damaging his sarcophagus, we don't know. The big question for me at this point is, did Antoine see Le Chevalier's sarcophagus? As a canon of Notre Dame, he would have been living in the Notre Dame complex, which was much larger at that time. And if his gout allowed, he was probably hobbling around, and he may have seen some of those construction works in person. But then Antoine soon joined Le Chevalier in his eternal slumber. Per the Guardian, part of Antoine's tomb was built from parts of the rood screen. So both men, in the end, were spending eternity with parts of that medieval rood screen, as well as having lived through and served, or in Le Chevalier's case, possibly fought against the early Bourbon kings. Some other ties that we find between them as time goes by. Then we get to the 19th century. Were they disturbed by the Viollet-le-Duc renovations? Was Le Chevalier moved around at this point? Was he even close to where he was originally interred? Hopefully we can find out more, but we may never know. About 150 years later, after that disruption, their slumber was disturbed again by the gigantic fire on April 15th, 2019. Three years later, they were on the move again. Le Chevalier perhaps returning to his homeland, Antoine perhaps visiting Toulouse for the first time, we don't know. And now they're bound together, not just by one's impact on the other's final resting place and the lives and, and times that they possibly served in, but by their new shared fame, their shared exposure, uh, a shared fate. It's these contrasts, these connections, imagined and tangible, that I love so much about history. 
But what happens to this unlikely duo now? Currently, they're undergoing more tests, including carbon dating and DNA testing, if it's possible. The officials have said that we should see the results, hopefully, in the first half of this year. So we'll be looking out by midsummer. Maybe we'll have something. And all the parties involved have said that once all the testing is done, the remains will be treated with dignity and reburied, but it's not yet decided on the details. I hope they're able to place them again in Notre Dame. It hasn't been a burial location, I believe, since the revolution. So I'm not sure if they're even allowed to, but I would hope. And I do hope that Le Chevalier gets a more dignified resting place this time than among the heating vents. But what about you? What do you think about these discoveries? And what do you hope becomes of the two sarcophagi of Notre Dame? Drop me a line and let me know. You can find the links in the show notes. As always, you can also go deeper into this episode, including seeing some of those photos of the discoveries, read the blog, check out the boutique, and explore more resources over at parisgoneby.com. And if you loved what you heard today, please subscribe or leave a comment. It really does help bring PGB to the masses. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. I'll be on tote. Thank you.